Office Hours Live is brought to you by Arroya, the ultimate cultivation platform. Unlock the power of crop steering through our state-of-the-art sensors and software. Repeat successful runs and scale faster than ever before. Schedule a demo today at Arroya.io. All right, it's Thursday at 4.20 p.m. Eastern. That means it's time for Office Hours, Arroya's weekly session for cultivators to hear from the experts and talk to each other about what they're seeing with their grows. My name is Keisha. I'll be co-moderating today with my good friend, Mandy. How you doing, Mandy? Hey, Keisha. Glad to be here for episode 34. Oh my gosh. Um, we're also uh, live over there on YouTube. So I'll be monitor monitoring for questions as those roll in. Um, and as always, if you're live here with us, you can ask a question at any time in our chat. Um, if your question is chosen, we'll go ahead and have you unmute yourself and ask away. Um, one more quick mention, Arroyo is now on TikTok. Um, yeah, yeah, they let me start a TikTok. So be sure to follow us if you're over there. Um, um, and completely, uh, you're going to have completely new content over there. Um, crop steering education, fun stuff. Um, yeah, it's it's going to be completely new. So um, we had a lot of questions submitted on TikTok and Instagram this week. So I'll go ahead and pass it, pass it back to the lovely Keisha. Amazing, Mandy. Thank you so much. It is on and popping here. We're going to get started, but real quick, if you're a first-time question asker, you may win some swag. You just drop your email address into the chat. If you haven't won before, one winner per household, uh, limiting that to U.S. Res residents only. Let's get the party started. Seth and Jason, how are you guys doing today? Doing well. Good. How are you, Keisha? Doing good. Thank you, guys. Good to see you. All right. Our first deep dive, we're going to start with that. We got some interesting feedback from client visits here. And so we thought we'd cover this for a few minutes uh, on this week's episode. So what do you guys think people need to know when they're trying to switch out or change their substrates? What kind of things are you seeing with client visits and what recommendations would you make for that? I think probably the first transition that people have been making and, and I think a lot of people have already made that it's going from more traditional substrates, something like, um, uh, peat or, uh, you know, perlite mixed type of soilist substrate into probably cocoa is usually their first step. Um, one of the reasons that that's a nice kind of intermediary step it to, um, rock wool would be the fact that it is slightly more forgiving than rock wool. Um, I like to always kind of think about, you know, cocoa as the, the SUV of the market and then cocoa or um, rock wool is kind of a, a sports car where we really, really need to make sure that we've got all our other systems in play in order to work with rock wool very well. Um, so yeah, you know, I, th I think a lot of people in this point are at least in the transitionary point to uh, moving from cocoa possibly into rock wool if uh, if they're indoor. Now, I see a lot of greenhouses they they've gotten really good results with cocoa. You know, they're at the point where you know environment sometimes not controllable enough to really want to make that next step. And so you know that, that's that's kind of where we're at across the board in the industry. And you know, we see a ton of people use it rock wool simply because it is so reactive when we steer it and so if they've got their irrigation scheduling set up really well you make sure they're not having any clogging products in their drip lines if you know if they are using a monitoring system so they can make sure that their drybacks are what they should be in rock wool those are those are kind of the first steps right now and i think we'll we'll deep dive a little bit here more into some of the scientific aspects of those medias but let's hear from seth yeah i mean i think one of the big things people need to look at too is you know media size and uh, look at, you know, what, what kind of saturation, what kind of volumetric water content can I get in that media? Because if you're going to switch, you want to switch to a media that serves your purposes better than what you have. You know, if your pot's currently too big, 
maybe you need to go from a four, three and a half gallon down to a one and a half or two gallon just to be able to steer the same size plant in the ways that we want to. Um, we also need to look at, uh, you know, what kind of consistency are we going to have? A big reason to move from cocoa to rock wool is that simply consistency. You know, with cocoa, every time I'm, as I'm using it, I'm always looking at where my water, <laughs> where I get runoff at and where, um, where I want to bottom out at. And that's always going to change a little bit with rock wool. I can consistently, you know, pretty much always count on a very similar level of saturation, at least at runoff. So as long as our field capacity, you know, is stable, that makes it way, way easier run to run to replicate the same irrigation strategies. Kind of just thinking of, um, you know, some of the reasons that people do it without even, you know, thinking about the, the, the plant output would just be the logistical aspects of moving to something like a, a pre-bagged, um, uh, unhydrated, the dried out cocoa, um, bags, you know, one gallon, two gallon. Those are, those are an awesome media. They're uh, usually pretty consistent. Uh, as long as you stick with the same supplier, they're fairly eco-friendly. Uh, you know, cocoa is, is great. I use it in my garden fairly consistently and, uh, and then space constraints, um, you know, that, uh, compressed cocoa blocks are, are really easy to store, uh, maybe even more so than rock wool, but, uh, but rock wool is, you know, it's, it's ready to use unlike a lot of the, the bagged soilless products that we used to mix and throw into hard pots back in the day. So we can save a lot of, it, a lot of it labor. We can definitely increase the cleanliness of our facilities by, by switching to some of the more modern medias, um, and they're, they're a little bit easier to use. So as long as you can find a, a good, reliable source and, and you have a little bit of room to, to store those prepackaged products, it's a nice way to streamline your, um, your, uh, transplant procedures and, uh, make sure that you are, are having consistent results run to run. Yeah. And you know, uh, honestly that commercial availability, can you continue to get that product? It's a big part of that choice. I think, I know we work with, uh, people in various parts of the country that just have supply chain issues. You know, the distributors that are in their area are having trouble keeping a certain brand of cocoa in stock or um, certain size slab in stock. So a big part of it going forward, too, is like, hey, is the product, is it better to choose a product that I can get a hold of and see how I can adjust my growing style to use that? Or if I found this really niche product that does work perfect for me, but might not be able to get it when I need it and I can't, let's say I don't have, you know, the space or money to buy five runs ahead. Um, that's, that's going to be a factor for sure. I know in my experience, having that same problem, um, you kind of end up, especially in, in the cocoa world, if you're not buying ahead, you're going to be jumping around brand to brand, size to size all the time. If you're running into, you know, an issue with supply chain of it or supply chain problems. And that's not something you want to be running into because now every time you get one dialed, <laughs> you get a run or two and then you switch again and it, it just makes life tough. So you really want to look at, you know, not only what, what are we looking for in perfection with production, but what is the most efficient in our like specific facility? Yeah. And, and so, so those are some of the operational aspects to, to think about and consider before you do make that transition. Uh, let's dive into some of the scientific, the cultivation aspects of how we can make sure our plants are getting the best crop health 
possible when we do transition that. So, and you guys will hear me talk about these properties quite a bit in any of our open office hour sessions, and, and that is cation exchange capacity um, and matrix potential. So these are products of any type of, of media. Uh, a lot of times we'll think about the spectrum of, uh, you know, complete living soil on one side and then, you know, something very inert uh, like rock wool on the other side of the spectrum. And when we talk about cation exchange capacity, sometimes you'll see it abbreviated CEC. And, and that's basically a reference on to how much does that substrate hang on to the nutrients in solution. And so, you know, based on the, the ion uh, interactions between the water solution, the fertigation solution, and the type of uh, particles in that substrate, uh, sometimes the, the nutrients are going to be held in suspension in that media for a longer duration. So you know, on rock wool, it's very reactive, meaning that when we uh, apply a new nutrient solution, the substrate has very little holding capacity to the nutrients, if you will. I'm not sure I really like that terminology, but um, but basically what happens in something like living soil, you know, if we think about um, like clay, for example, it's definitely going to hang on to some of those nutrients simply because of the, the interaction between the fertigation and the, um, and the substrate particles. So that would be covering, you know, CEC. So let's just go over the most common uh, interactions, maybe moving from something like uh, cocoa to rock wool. And if we think about cocoa, it, it does have some amount of um, cation exchange holding capacity. And so when we actually charge that up with, uh, you know, if we were at a, a zero EC fertigation, a lot of times I'll see my, um, my cocoa in at that, that 1.0, uh, EC range, you know, and depending on supplier, you know, it could be anything from probably, I'm throwing numbers out there, 0.8 to maybe up to 1.5, uh, depending on who you get that from and, and, you know, how long it's been since it was washed and that type of stuff. So if we were moving into rock wool, we want to make sure that we are monitoring our substrate EC and our runoff EC very closely until we get adjusted to the new substrate. Uh, you know, something like rock wool is going to have a, a very low EC right off the bat. Um, you know, really even the first time you wash it, you might see some funny numbers simply because of the um, uh, wetting agent that is impregnated in a lot of uh, a lot of rock wools. So do keep that in mind as well. You know, get that stuff soaked through and, and then do a runoff with your normal feed levels and see, hey, you know, are we, you know, a point or a point and a half above what or excuse me, below what we would expect when we were running in uh, in cocoa. And maybe we'll just jump into thinking about matrix potential as well. And this kind of comes back to the analogy I was speaking into where uh, cocoa is a little bit more forgiving than something like rock wool. So if we've been running cocoa for a while and we've been monitoring and we've got our shots, uh, you know, right in line and we don't we don't have too many equipment failures that, that would run us into some crop uh some monetary jeopardy, you know, losing value because of the, the health of the plant. If we had some failures or clogged emitters, that type of stuff. So when we are going into something like rock wool, you know, if we drop our, our water contents too low, we can definitely uh, run into some hydrophobic properties being developed. And that's why it is shipped with that wetting agent so that it can be stored dry and yet retain its properties when it's first irrigated, when it's first wet up 
uh, those wetting agents get dissolved throughout the the substrate and they're no longer in there to protect it from from over drying out and that's when you'll see nutrient channeling uh irrigation funneling that type of stuff and uh you know, go back in our office hours and check out the the kitchen spun analogy that i talk about where you know we want to make sure we're dripping nice and slow um, obviously if we had some channeling in there they'd be dry splotches uh that we could see if we were looking inside of that slab um yeah so that that matrix potential basically means that uh you know in, in rock wool the plant's not going to feel much irrigation stress or drought stresses would be uh the terminology from traditional agriculture and and what happens is that matrix potential meaning the how much the plants have to apply a vacuum to the substrate in order to pull the water out of the substrate uh the, the plants don't have to push pull much vacuum in order to pull that uh rock wool all the way to pretty much zero water content. And uh, when we look at the matrix potential curves of something like cocoa, and this is one of the reasons it is a little bit more forgiving as well, is when we when we hit that, uh, you know, about 25% range, uh, and depending on manufacturer again, but there's going to be a little bit of an inflection point and elbow on that matrix potential curve. And what that means is the plants are going to have to apply significantly more vacuum in order to get lower than, uh, you say, 20%, right? So how much vacuum they to apply between 30 and 20 might be uh, quite a bit less than what they have to apply between say 20 and 10 percent water content and so one of the things is you have a visual indicator on the plant before it's actually in a, a point at which it could theoretically really die so it's going to feel some type of drought stress if we're using cocoa when we run into the the really low water contents like that that's a great overview, you guys. Thank you so much. Um, Michael, who's on here live with us today, posted a comment uh, and a question. Um, he wrote here, the six by six cocoa cubes are pretty uniform. I didn't know if you guys wanted to speak to that um, before I ask his question. Or before, Michael, you can ask your question too, if you'd like to unmute yourself. Poor signal. In there. Yes. Okay. So here's actually his question. What are the differences in ceilings and floors for water content and EC in the two substrates? A little bit different manufacturer to manufacturer. And I'm just going to talk about, you know, before we've run into any um, drying out issues or whatever. So when we're first wetting things out, you know, with rock wool slab, we usually see our field capacity near between say 65 and 75% would be the typical numbers that, uh, that I'm used to seeing with a, with a rock wool slab from the most popular uh, vendors. And, uh, and Coco's it's, I think it's a little bit wider range just because we've got some that are, uh, uh, more pithy, uh, some that are more chunky, and even some vendors that offer different types of blends. Uh, I actually just got some samples in the other day, and they 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 stage it in layers where um, they've got a little bit more of the the pith up top and the the chunk down bottom, just to try and attribute the the way that the water pushes those particles down into to that product. And so. Uh, it's probably, you know, say field capacity about 50% Cocoa. Uh, yeah, plus yeah. or minus I mean, 15. If you got any perlite in there down into the 30s. Um, yeah, I would say for most commercial products out there, anywhere between about 42. And I've seen some that do go up to like 70, 75. Yeah. So it's it's highly variable. But that's part of why that supply chain uh, security is so essential. Because once you've locked in a, a certain media, like the product you were talking about, I would not want to switch immediately from that to something that is just 
a straight cocoa or a different mix right away. You know, at least that would be pretty inconvenient because that's a pretty specific growing substrate. If I'm dealing with those layers, I've kind of tuned how I know the sensor readings are going to be to that media. You know, I've gotten used to it in a lot of ways. And there's a few key differences that that one would have that others don't, especially when we're talking about water holding capacity throughout the day. So yeah, yeah, that's actually consistent. a great question to bring up when we're talking about transitioning from a media, because one of the first things that you will want to do is get your sensors in there and check out what you're expecting to be your field capacity at, you know, so you do that initial saturation and, and watch those closely until you see some runoff and say, all right, well, usually when I'm hitting... 58% with this media, then I'll expect some runoff. Um, and, and that's one way to kind of help yourself familiarize when you're adjusting your graphs, because if I moved from cocoa to Rockwell and I tried to run the exact same uh, Arroyo recipe graph, uh, things probably wouldn't be as happy as they possibly could be. Well, you'd certainly have a lot of challenges replicating that, you know, day to day immediately. Your, your irrigation schedules wouldn't work. And, uh, yeah, Mike, in terms of, uh, EC, you know, no matter what substrate we're using, we're going to go by plant health indicators to look at that. So if we've got a plant that's deficient for certain things, we might be increasing the EC and at certain times, particularly when applying generative stress, we do want to increase that EC because that's all helping. That's also helping us apply some generative stress to the plant. Um, but as far as a floor and a ceiling, uh, typically if you're all the way down at what your feed EC is. You might be seeing some deficiencies. I would call that a, a hard floor. <laughs> and then the ceiling. Usually once we start to see plants peaking up above 15, up near 20, that's when we'll start to see some uh, leaf burn and signs that there's a little bit too much osmotic pressure on those plants. Yeah. And one thing to keep in mind too, is when Seth's talking about that, you know, 20 is a, a reasonable ceiling, this is going to be a, you know, a peak right before irrigations on the next day. So we're checking out that time series data and thinking about how long is it spending in this amount of EC range. And obviously uh, it's one of the ways that we can make sure that our crop steering is working is, is by applying that osmotic um, or reducing that osmotic differential when we increase our EC. Yep. And then remember, you know, your plants are always, especially if you're trying to run generative, you know, and especially if you've been in a big media before where that's all you were running, your plants are always exposed to a range in EC. So we're looking at EC, there really is never one value for any part of the growth phase. There's an expected range that we would like to see. And when you go out of that range above it, a lot of times that's simply a result of over drying. So is the on that one event, is the high EC hurting the plant or is the low water content hurting the plant? Well, the reality is the plant's just using too much energy to try to uptake water. So that's what's causing damage. And we need to uh, remedy that by not over drying rather than looking at the EC and going, well, you know, that's why I got, you know, some herms in week seven was that EC. It's like, well, maybe, but if it's just spiking at the end of the day, it might be because it's getting real, real dry and that plant's like kind of dying. <laughs> You know, we're putting way too much drought stress on it and actually damaging its health. Yeah. And, you know, thinking about where we've come from with nutrients, I've worked with a lot of people that uh, get a little bit shy of running as high in nutrients as some of the, the modern two-part salts recommend. And you know, fortunately, we're in a day and age where there has been a, a pretty significant uh, increase in the quality of products that we can get for, for nutrients from these vendors. Um, you know, maybe not. So if we were mixing from, from raw, um, 
chemicals ourselves, but but as far as a lot of the two parts, they're pretty well balanced in their their nutrients, and so we we're able to run higher ECs than than we used to be comfortable with. Oh yeah, and then you know when we go back and talk about cation exchange capacity as well. Um, historically, like before I ever grew soilless, even uh, growing field crops and stuff. We're still using salt fertilizer, but what we're contending with there is how is that interacting with the soil? And in a mineral-based soil, we've got the ability for certain compounds, certain nutrients to be held in the soil and still accessible to the plants, depending on the soil type. Other soil types we're going to have and certain pHs, uh, nutrients that are held to that soil, but not plant accessible. So in especially if you've been growing only in a soilless media the whole time, you might not be quite familiar with the idea that you're going to change your feed ranges, feed ranges or push them so high. However, like if you were growing in, you know, certain field agriculture applications and you go from, you know, more of a silty loam to a heavy clay soil, you're used to making those changes and saying, okay, there's, it's not just about what the plants need. It's more about, you know, we're working with osmotic energy and working with what's actually available to the plant. Michael, you'll have to let us know if that answered everything uh, that was in your question. Um, but we're getting a ton of questions over on YouTube. So I'm going to go ahead and ask a couple of those. Um, Diane wrote in and wants to know, if I'm in week eight and I figured out I have molds because of VPD at 0.65, and I figured out it's a mistake, if I raise my VPD to 1.4, will it slow down the molding process? It'll slow it down. Yeah. Um, obviously once the, the mold spores are already growing, uh, there's not much you can do to go back. Uh, that's why we really uh, encourage as much preventative, um, integrated pest management as possible is, is cause you can, you can keep them from growing, but once they're growing, all you can do is kill them and there's still going to be mold on the product. Yep. You know, one of the biggest things too, is, uh, starting to identify how your different strains present that they have mold. You know, for a lot of them, that bud will start to look just a little bit drier. You might see some leaf tips, but you can learn to identify it before you actually have to crack into those buds and spread spores around the room to find it. You know, that's a big part. And then really, you've got to be vigilant about your VPD, you know, like late flower week seven and eight, even at night, dipping down below a 1.0 or a 1.1, you're probably going to have mold. Even if you do it for two hours, it's going to allow those spores to germinate. And then once it's growing, I mean, you You've got to think the inside of that bud is never nearly as dry as the air around it. And once it becomes wet in there, we can't really do much to dry it out. I mean, you might have noticed, like, if you've ever got condensation that drips onto a plant, you know, you can you can put a fan right in front of there if you fix it and try to get that bud dried out. But once it's bad enough for long enough, it's just going to stay moldy. There's no bringing it back. You've just got to correct it on the next run and probably do a lot of scrubbing in between now and then. Every run is a learning experience. Diane, thank you so much for your question. Uh, we have so many questions coming in. We got Bilbo on with us. You posted a question. You want to go ahead and ask it? Okay. Uh, back to substrates. Let's consider the amount and how long different substrates take to achieve runoff. You guys recently spoke to mold and VPD. So is it reasonable to assume that the resulting moisture event from irrigation, whether that be transpiration, evapotranspiration, or the irrigation fluid on the table under different substrates will act differently and influence the environmental variables also equally differently? 
Maybe slightly. Uh, I mean, this is one of those where you're just going to have to take a lot of variables into play. I mean, uh, what type of HVAC equipment are you running? Are you running uh, slopes on your environmental changes, on your lighting changes? Uh, how you know how big is the room? How what's your plant spacing? Your total biomass. Um, you know, as far as the, the actual amount that the substrate might play in play into it, probably not as much as the other factors that we could take a look at first. I'll tell you one big factor, um, slabs versus open top pots. Oh yeah. There you go. If you've got open top media, you're going to have greater, uh, evaporation. But other than that, you know, whether it's rock wool or cocoa, we're talking still about two, uh, two media that have very low matrix potential. So the VPD is going to be what drives transpiration and evaporation in the environment much more than the media. Now, if your media is too small or too big, you know, if you put a lot of water into the room onto a big media size, like you're going to have a lot more evaporation over time, obviously. And it's going to be, you know, not a consistent rate. It's probably going to speed up more and more as that pot gets drier. Is the answer then, is the answer then yes? It, it, it is something that we should consider if someone's. So basically uh, the, you're not going to change your VPD for any specific type of media. As far as your environment goes, you want to keep it well within established parameters. What you don't want to do is, you know, think that, I mean, the, the only thing I could think that you would want to change there is if your pots are too small and you're drying out too fast, you might consider lowering your VPD. If you're up at like, let's say 1.7, 1.8, trying to finish some big nugs. But other than that, um, those two media are going to be behave very similarly in terms of, uh, moisture events. Yeah, so transpiration or excuse me, evaporation is just going to be a factor of the exposed substrate um, or other wet products in the room. The more surface area we have exposed, the more evaporation we're going to see from those products. Yeah. So like open dock fabric pots, you know, you've got your media surrounded by a wick. You're going to have a little bit more evaporation there compared to say a slab. Same if you're running like the GR40s, that's an open top, bigger unislab type product. Um, but yeah, otherwise always going to keep your VPD within ranges and then watch how your media reacts and smaller pot sizes are going to dry out faster. EC is going to rise quicker in those. That's the biggest difference. Thanks, Bilbo. It's always good to see you. Um, yeah, we we're going to move on back to some of the YouTube questions that we got. Um, Diane wrote in, this is a defoliation question. If I defoliate five days before harvest, is that going to help me ripen my plants or slow them down? I want to do it because I can't lower my humidity. What are your opinions? Well, if you want to do it because you can't lower your humidity, it's probably the only option and the right option. Um, you know, if, if you're going to be just losing some bud to mold, that's the absolute worst case, right? If you're slowing your, your ripening down just a slight amount, that's you know, not nearly as bad as throwing product out. Yeah, absolutely. You know, and in that case, the biggest thing you want to be careful for is not to get too greedy when you're trying to take those leaves, you know, try to focus on just the fan leaves, any leaves that, that has a petiole, which is the stem of the leaf that connects the base of the leaflets to the stem of the plant, cut that with scissors or snips. Don't grab those and pop them off the stem and damage the base of the bud right before you cut it down. Um, I found when in the past five working with people and they're really, you know, not wanting to use the scissors or just getting too aggressive with it, we'll find mold uh, either right before we cut down or in the drying room at those wound sites. But if you can cut that petiole, that will naturally dry back into a little twig almost, and you'll avoid that problem completely. 
So many good questions coming in. Um, we have another one from Bilbo. Go ahead and uh, unmute yourself. Okay. I want to talk about BRICS measurements. It's used in uh, lots of different other kinds of agriculture, food products. I want to know if you guys have any experience taking these readings, when they matter more. Uh, we do have an instrument on site, but no tests have been taken thus far. And if you can shed some light on that, that would be greatly appreciated. Yeah, you know, bricks, we're talking about sugar concentration in the plant tissue, how much sugar is there. Um, typically, when I'm looking at cannabis towards the end, when we have a you know product we're about to bring down, uh, we don't want a lot of sugar in it. However, that being said, I haven't seen a lot of research relating specifically to cannabis and the buds. One thing it can be used for is an indication of how much your plant's photosynthesizing and how healthy it is. Um, but I will say I don't have any specific values that I can give to you, much like using a leaf parameter. Those would be values that I'd want to establish in my facility and compare, okay, what's a, a healthy plant look like? What's a weak, weak plant look like? All right, we switched this fertilizer. We're seeing higher sugar production in weeks one through five. That's a sign that maybe we're getting better performance out of this fertilizer. Um, but as far as bricks goes, generally it's used to indicate quality in a lot of different fruit crops. How is the test performed in cannabis flower? Or, I mean, as I understand, it's just grind up some leaves, get a drop, drop it onto the refractometer lens, I guess you would call it, and yeah. let the reading happen. Is that is that what you understand? Yeah. And personally, I don't think it would work that well <laughs> with finished buds. I, I don't know how well you're going to, you know, if that's going to work quite that well with trichromes and oils and stuff floating around in there. It, it suggests to take the leap. Is that, is that something that makes sense to you? Yeah, but it's not like the biggest indicator I would look at. Like I said, when we're looking at other crops, we're looking at things that we want sugar production in. When I'm looking at bricks levels and grapes, that's a direct indicator of quality. You know, if I'm, I'll use grapes as an example, same with blueberries. If I want to have a good bricks level, a good amount of sugar in there, I'm going to be applying the right kind of generative stress to make sure that that plant is focusing on fruit production. And that bricks level is going to tell me I achieved that goal. We're looking for THC, not sugar. So if you want to use it as an indicator for plant growth, um, that's useful. I wouldn't say it compares. It, there's a direct comparison between bricks levels and quality in cannabis. Uh, Amazing. Debunked. Thank you. I mean, there, there's merit to paying attention. It's another, it's another uh, stream of data that you can look at, right? You can say, okay, I've got a plant that's making more sugar. It's healthier. That's what photosynthesis does. But again, like if you were to use it on buds, to me, more sugar means more stuff that you don't want to burn that's residually left over in that bud. So is it useful? Maybe. Um, I think we have better indicators like water activity and potency to go by than bricks level. And then also at the end of the day, there's consumer demand. You know, um, we can... We can put out water activity tests, potency tests, cannabinoid tests. And at the end of the day, it's how well the consumer enjoys it. If it has still at the end of the day is, does it have a good nose? Does it smoke well? I love these discussions. Oh my gosh, we're learning so much. Um, Bilbo, you'll have to let us know if you have any follow-up questions. Um, but yeah, we're going to go ahead and get back to some of our questions that we have in the chat. Um, Diane, uh, yours is up next. Do you want to take yourself off mute and go ahead and ask the guys? Or I can ask for you. I can definitely ask for you. 
So what's better, ammonium nitrogen or nitrate nitrogen, and how can I use them? So ammonium is not very plant mobile. You want to go with any, well, calcium nitrate, potassium nitrate. There's several forms of nitrate you can use. Um, if you're asking this question, I would probably just stick with a tried and true fertilizer brand rather than trying to supplement your own nitrate. Um, you know, like if we're talking about ammoniacal nitrogen, that's not always the easiest product to just go buy in a level that you want to use it in your grow. And it might require some, uh, hazmat licensing to handle. So useful. Yes. Ammoniacal nitrogen. It's been a cheap product for over a hundred years in agriculture. Nitrate. That's what you want. It's plant mobile. So if you're looking at a nutrient line that may not be, let's say marketed specifically for cannabis and it has high ammoniacal nitrogen, you're probably wasting a little bit of money in terms of the weight in that fertilizer bag. Diane, save that money and let us know if you have any follow-up. Post it in the chat, okay? We're going to move on. We have so many questions. Husky posted a question here. They would like to know, can you ask from, oh, I don't have to read that part. Um, some advocate keeping the same day and night temps to avoid humidity spike. How do you feel about such practices in terms of crop steering and plant signaling? Yeah. So we, we did, we covered this one pretty well in detail, I think two or three episodes ago. Um, my general rule of thumb is always pay attention to your strains. What kind of expression are you trying to get out of that strain? Uh, and if, you know, we're shooting for middle of the road, I like to break it into thirds where, you know, the first third of flower, I run a zero nighttime diff in the temperature for the second, uh, third of flower, I'll go for somewhere around five degree diff. And then for maybe the last third, I'll go for a 10 degree diff. And that, you know, that's basically, you know, knowing nothing about the, the genetics or the facility constraints, right? So anytime that we're making those where we don't have any visibility on the variables that you're working with. So I'm really glad that you talked about, you know, keeping humidity spikes down. Um, we know a lot of times it's, it's actually related to other things in there. Uh, so when we, you know, when we think about, uh, fluctuation in the temperature, sure, your relative humidity might, might have some changes, but your absolute humidity is not necessarily going to be affected by the temperature. What it is affected by is turning lights on or turning lights off. You know, when we think about a, an HPS room, uh, those, those HPS lights are generating a lot of heat and they burn off quite a bit of humidity. So one of the most common, uh, humidity spikes that, uh, that we'll see in charting is right after lights off, um, um, and there's usually a fairly easy first step to try and avoid that. And that is kick your dehumidifier on for 30 minutes or an hour before your lights off. And, uh, and rather than seeing a big spike, you'll just get a drop at a blip, uh, trying to offset what, what's going to go on in that room. So use your time series data and some of your, uh, your control logics to try and, to try and work best for your plants. Yeah. I mean, you really nailed it there, Jason. We've got, you know, our third, third system as far as zero, five and 10 degree diffs. However, um, I would say at least 50% of the growers that I, when I first start talking to them, as we get later into flower, they are unable to keep up with the humidity with a 10 degree overnight diff. So most of the time when we're looking at that, it's really, what can your, what can your facility tolerate? And are you willing to make a choice between, you know, especially depending on the genetics, you're going to know your genetics more than Jason or I do for sure. If you run them several times, but do you want purple or do you want mold? Moldy purple weed is not generally that desirable if you know, so 
that's what we got to look at at the end of the day. Um, Bilbo Baggins, I'm going to go ahead and ask for you. Bilbo wants to know how early can a water activity reading be useful? Um, so when product goes into a dry room, usually that water activity is going to be in the 0.99. So, I mean, it's about as wet as you can read anything. Um, I, I would still recommend, you know, taking readings that first day. So, you know, probably no later than 12 hours after it's been in there that you could start getting useful readings. Um, if you want them to be really useful, take them from the beginning and see when it does drop off 0.99. You know, do you go to 0.98 in three hours? Um, it does another, you know, with maybe a, a smaller nugged product go to 0.96 in three hours? Uh, so I guess the answer there is uh, it's dependent. Um, it's it's going to take a little bit of time for the, those things to begin drying out. If it's helpful for you to know when they absolutely begin drying out, then, uh, then, you know, take them, take them immediately and start logging those. But, uh, you know, as a general rule of thumb, I usually just like to have one water activity reading a day until we've got things kind of dialed in for that, um, that dry room and that cultivar. Yeah. I mean, you know, the first time you're using it, um, I think it's great to take quite a few readings the first couple of days, just so you can establish when you don't want to see a flat line. We want to see a, de a steady decline. That being said, if you're in there every half hour taking one, you might might just be putting on a lot of miles, way more than you need to. So breaking it up into one or two times a day at first and then seeing, okay, all right, there's four hours in between each of those readings or six or eight. How much of a decline did I see? Is it enough that I'm actually going to recapture any moisture lost in between there to make it worth sampling? And then, like I said, establishing, okay, if uh, I know we're going to have quality problems if we see it go down to a certain number too early. Or if we stay above, like, let's say 0.9 for 48 hours, I might be getting worried that it's molding in there. You know, something might be broke. So as much as you want, but just kind of like uh, if you're running around with the Solus out there checking it, guys, <laughs> the more the better. But you've got to try to find that balance between what actually works for you operationally and what uh, is going to get you to where you need to be in terms of what you're trying to do. Yeah, and this, this kind of brings up an, an interesting thing that I was curious about when I first got in cannabis, and that was, well, if we want to dry faster, can't we just drop our humidities in the room quite a bit and, and dry that thing out faster and turn it over? And uh, a couple things can happen there, and that is one, you know, jeopardizing some of the, the quality, uh, some of the, the terpene and the smell profiles that we get off of that. And then another that is, is less obvious is the um, you can actually build a, a water barrier, and so the outside of the bud will dry and since there's not not it's the bud is no longer homogeneous uh the inside is going to have a harder time drying simply because the outside is, is crusted over if you will and and so that's a, a drying barrier that you definitely want to avoid yeah and that's a good point if you over dry too quickly you're looking at you know risking again we're always talking about mold but mold longer later down the line in the in your curing buckets no one wants that in the bins and then also we got to remember too, you know, we, we want it to be a very steady decline just because that, that homogenization is super important. The bud needs to, you know, slowly dry so that certain compounds like sugars, uh, a whole host of other volatile compounds can slowly break down before we get to the point where we go into that final cure. And then, uh, you know, I mean, that's honestly, that's a big part of when we look at like weed that grew, looked great, comes out without a good nose. 
uh, smokes really harsh. A lot of that's just drying down way too quick and not allowing the bud to homogenize and cure properly. All about that consumption experience at the end of the day, right? Consumer experience. All right. Going to keep it going here. Michael dropped a question in the chat. Want to go ahead and ask that for him. Do you find any benefit in changing the food balance throughout flowering? like more nitrogen in the first few weeks and heavy PK at finish? Or has crop searing eliminated the need for those changes? This just depends on how how much flexibility you have at your site. You know, if we're if I'm running five rooms or more, um, maybe even if I'm just running three rooms off one one dosers, uh, one set of dosers, or I, you know I'm using a, a batch tank for for mixed rooms, and I don't have the flexibility to to fluctuate my nutrient balance. Um, you know, sometimes it's it's not worth it, right? Uh, I, you know, obviously, if we we think about um, early on when we're using a a veg formula, it is definitely going to be higher in, in something like nitrogen, and um, a lot of the flowering formulas that we see nowadays are actually already very very low in nitrogen uh, and so it's it's something where you just have to, have to consider how much complexity that you want to involve and, and how much value can you gain by involving that yeah highly strain dependent and equipment dependent you know if you're if your situation is you've got one injection system for all your flower rooms and you don't have the ability to change that between room uh, you know, most of the, uh, single mix recipes out there today, a lot of the nutrients around, I don't even have to name them. Guess what? They work great for probably 80 to 90% of strains out there. Um, when you find ones that don't work in that, you can consider that fertilizer. I mean, you, you've made an investment, you've bought a part of your system. So economically you always want to consider like, well, if I have to really treat this thing tough, is it, is it worth it to make all these changes? And then also the other side of it is, uh, Man, it, it's amazing at how different plants just respond to different EC levels. You know, I've definitely been in a situation chasing my tail thinking, man, I got to throw CalMag at this. I got to throw a sulfur supplement at everything I can think of. Next round, just raise the EC in the pot by like two or three points on the range. And it's beautiful. It's no more toxicities. And I didn't change the fertilizer. So, I mean, that's also why uh, going back to tissue analysis is good. And then, you know, as far as... Um, Traditional fertilizer mixes before we got into commercial uh, cannabis cultivation as big as it is now, oftentimes did drop out nitrogen for the most part for the last few weeks of flower. And part of that was because it was a necessity for some of those boutique strains that are notoriously difficult to grow. Um, what we found in plant science, though, is that most cultivars are only going to uptake what they want. So some plants will have a tendency to preferentially uptake nitrogen late in flower, but by and large, they take what they want. And that EC balance has a lot more to do with how we've built it over time and what we have available to the plant than um, oftentimes what the plants might actually be missing. Awesome. Thank you guys for that. Uh, Michael, you'll have to let me know if you have any follow-up with that. Um, Diane, I'm going to ask yours next. Diane wants to know, are there any benefits from amino acids in hydroponics, for example? Is it uh, Does it open uh, more calcium ion channels at the roots um, and stimulate them to uptake more calcium, or is that a wrong theory? I honestly uh, couldn't dive deep enough here without looking up some stuff to come back with you on that one. Um, I think there has been there has been benefits shown in organic ag agriculture for amino acids, um, especially you know look at like uh, JDAM or like the FA fish amino acid mixes and things like that. Um, however. 
you've got to balance that with uh, the fact that most of those supplements aren't going to work in a drip system. Generally speaking, they clog it up. Um, and the other reality is that if you're getting, you know, just like anything, if you can try around with amino acids and somehow, you know, you're not going to plug everything up or you're going to get your irrigation equipment to last is that improvement. You know, what do you see? Are we seeing grams per square foot? Are we seeing quality? Um, in my experience, I've never been able to narrow it down to it being one particular supplement usually that did something for me. It's uh, it's always a holistic approach. Great. Thank you for that. Um, Guy, and let us know if you have any other questions related to that. Um, Bilbo posted a great question. It goes back a few minutes when you guys were talking about uh, the drying, the importance of the drying process. He wrote, um, how should I dry with an, uh, with an aqua lab? Uh, so I'll just take like the hands-on approach here. And what you want to do is, uh, you know, think about some of the variances in your dry room, uh, including your genetic variances and try to get a representative sample from each of those different, um, you know, possibly, you know, one zone's a little bit drier than the other, or some, uh, some cultivars have really large, uh, dense buds and some are, are more popcorn-y. Uh, so, you know, make sure that you're are getting enough samples that are going to represent what you're trying to look at in there. Um, take that bud and you can just kind of cut it up into a few pieces. I always recommend using scissors rather than grinders just because a grinder can kind of powder it and give you a little bit uh, unrepresentative. Uh, it's probably okay as long as you are you know, always grinding and using that as your, your reference procedure. But, but I, I prefer scissors just to cut it up into, you know, four or eight chunks that fit into the aqua lab uh yeah take one or two samples every day document those so that you you know with the the variables hey this is from you know the top left corner of the dry room and it was uh, some um you know uh, blue dream or, or whatever type of genetic that it is. Uh, and keep, uh, keep taking those samples every day until, you know, you're ready to pull it. And you might say, all right, well, for our, our blue lab, we're at, uh, you know, 12 day or, or blue dream. We're at 12 days, uh, is where we hit that, uh, that perfect. And, you know, then sometimes once you're really getting better, like, all right, we need to just slightly wetter than we are at 12 days. Let's shoot for 11 and a half with, with this specific setup. And, uh, you know, there might be other cultivars that you can pull down, uh, out of their faster as well. And that can really help your processing workflow. You know, you think about, um, moving the product out that, that does dry a little bit faster and it can help, uh, help your team know where we want to begin in that room. And then when, you know, as we are working throughout the day is where we want to end up. Awesome. I love talking about the Aqualab. <laughs> it's one of my favorite uh, products. Um, Bilbo had another question and I'm going to go ahead and ask for him. And I think that this opens us up to a little bit of a discussion, but uh, let me guys, let me know. Uh, isn't strain, like the word strain, uh, isn't that terminology for bacteria? How did that word end up being used in the culture? It's also a term for when I work too hard. <laughs> I, I think uh, that just kind of goes back to the days because even if we look at some of the growing books and stuff out of like the late 70s, early 80s, there were some serious horticulturalists that were using, you know, the terms cultivar and variety correctly. Uh, personally, I think strain kind of dates back to, uh, you know, the underground <laughs> when we had people throwing out names like AK-47 and nine pound hammer and strains that sounded mean. Uh, on the same, on the same vein, you know, strain sounds a little cooler than cultivar. Um, 
you know, when you go, when you go shopping at the tree nursery, you see cultivars when you're looking at apples. Well, weed isn't apples. So we wanted our own little term for it. I think is about how far that goes and it's stuck. It rolls off the tongue a little nicer than cultivar. And, uh, it's, it's here to stay <laughs> is what I've learned over the past few years. I can definitely tell you that. We've, we've seen sometimes in our system, uh, cultivar is, uh, misread and some people think it's cultivator and they'll put their <laughs> own name in rather than the, uh, the strain name, if you will. So we've definitely experienced some of, some of the terminology. We obviously wanted to attribute it with the as scientific as possible, uh, approach, but, uh, even in today's I hear strain probably 80% of the time compared to any other terminology that can be used for it. So, and that's also embedded, I think with a lot of people outside of agriculture, because they're used to talking about, uh, you know, the most recent, uh, being co- different strains of COVID, you know, <laughs> different mutations and stuff. We're used to hearing that term and we're talking about different distinct genetic lines of something. Awesome. Well, we're going to go ahead down our list because we're getting close to uh, the end of our show. Diane had another question. Thank you for these, by the way. Um, if I increase my PPFD to 1700, uh, is it going to make my plants produce smaller fan leaves? Um, that's going to make my light penetration deeper in the canopy and potentially uh, will I, uh, I will have lower bud. I will have the lower buds bigger. Am I right? probably not going to produce smaller fan leaves. Um, it's very likely going to produce bigger fan leaves. As that plant's getting more energy, it's going to grow a little bit faster and, and possibly a little bit bigger in that time frame. Um, that being said, you know, if you are up in that type of very high, uh, light range, at least for indoor type of cultivation, uh, you might have more light penetration deeper simply because you have so much more light coming to the top of the canopy. Uh, and that, could possibly make your, your lower buds, uh, bigger, denser, uh, you need that type of stuff. Yeah. And then also, you know, at a certain point you've got to accept the reality that there is shade deeper in your canopy. And no matter what, if you leave lower buds on past a certain point, you're going to have a quality difference, you know, between them and what's above. So if I spend too much time worrying about those lower buds and stripping upper fan leaves, I'm just taking away food from the more quality buds that I want to bulk up. So really for you finding that line of where like, Hey, if I leave buds below this point, quality suffers and I don't like that. That's probably the best approach. If you're in a situation where you need, you know, 20 or 30% of your product to go for joints or small buds for whatever reason, um, you know, that's a different conversation, but at the same time, we're still probably not going to put a lot of effort into opening it up at the expense of other buds. We can get rid of fan leaves, but once we start getting rid of bud leaves, then we're really cutting into our yield. Yeah. And you know, there's some, some interesting things that people try to increase the, the light down below. And obviously things like having lighter colored or white walls, a white floor, those are always just going to naturally help the reflection of light in the room. Um, it's, you know, pretty easy way to sometimes cut costs and stuff. And, and then I think sometimes, uh, more recently we've seen some people running, uh, in canopy lighting. Uh, I don't necessarily have any feedback on, on what that looks like these days. Um, but I have, have seen it out there. You know, one of the coolest, uh, recent studies I've seen that it's not, it's not nearly finished yet. It's some armchair studies and <laughs> some people I know that are playing with PPFD meters, but Playing with light spacing and height with some of these higher PPFD capable lights where they're finding that if they can pull the light up a little bit and crank it, they actually get a better angle coming out of the fixture and they're getting better penetration, not by blasting it straight down, 
but adjusting the geometry of which way their light comes from. And that way they're getting, you know, instead of this bud blocking this bud, now the light's coming down into an angle at an angle and it can hit the lower buds. So we're starting to see some of that. Um, the easiest way to dial that obviously is with spreadsheets and a PPFD meter. But, um, I, yeah, we're, there's starting to be better solutions for that. But at the end of the day, we've always, like I said, go back to establishing your ideal canopy depth to maintain the quality that you want. Awesome. Thank you guys for that. Um, we had a couple questions over on TikTok, so I'm going to quickly get to those. Um, Alan wants to know, um, can Arroyo help uh, growers with pest control? I'm having spider mites. Um, document what your pesticide management system looks like. Uh, you know, in Arroyo specifically, if you have Arroyo, use the, the pesticide management features in there. Uh, make sure that your employees are doing a good job logging it and, and uh, taking pictures, you know, all right, well, where did the spider mites begin? Did they uh, come from the, the leaky door over in the back right side? Uh, you know, maybe it's something that we need to address maintenance concerns. Uh, like I said earlier as well, preventative maintenance is by far the best way. It's the easiest way, the least expensive way to, to help, you know, control any type of pest infestations. So that um, that's our advice yeah. Utilize your task management tools to make sure that that, you know, your pest inspections, your scouting, everything's getting taken care of. And then, you know, adding pictures, just general, not only crop, but facility registration like, oh, hey, yeah, we got you know, <laughs> a crack in this wall between the two rooms over here. We've got, you know, a lot of different grow facilities have their own unique issues, um, whether it's, you know, doors sealing up, just like you mentioned, simple things um, or sometimes more complicated things like, hey, we've got this crack in the foundation that apparently is letting things in from outside, you know, but if you don't document everything, it's hard to look back quantitatively, especially when you're in a situation where you're walking around and going like, Oh man, there they are again. There they are again. You know, it day to day gets pretty repetitive and tough to look back and say, okay, yeah, we got those when we took in these cuts or, Hey, we, you know, I'll say something mean here, but I've seen it happen before. We hired someone who grows at their house. And ever since then, now we've got aphids and spider mites and, you know, like just keeping track of everything. So you can really take that when you do put in the time to try to track it, you actually are successful. And, you know, just think about, you know, and kind of adding on to what Seth was saying, where, where did, where did the source of that, uh, infestation come from uh, you know is it our environmental factors that are promoting that type of uh, pest to grow is it something like in our area right now we have an incredible wheat crop coming down which means that the natural habitat of a lot of those pests is now going away and they're looking for my nice warm greenhouse with a bunch of tasty uh, cannabis plants to be chewing on and uh, every year right now it's a uh, it's a struggle to, to keep things like spider mites down in, in the greenhouses in this area at least oh yeah spider mites green peach aphids i mean un unfortunately cannabis suffers from a lot of the same pests that pretty much most com commercially cultivated crops do as well so you know when you're in and as this whole industry moves forward, a lot of growers are going out, you know, and doing this in rural areas and they're surrounded by other agriculture. It's just a reality that we've got to live with, you know? And one cool thing about that though, is like, I'll use the, the green peach aphids around here as an example, whatever field you're close to, when they spray it, they're going to come in. When they chop it, they're going to come in, but it's pretty predictable. <laughs> you go, Hey, they're cutting the wheat. So we're going to spray for aphids in the rooms that we can and then have a good program for the next month or two until it gets cold finally. And then the aphids are done for the season. 
Um, thank you guys for that. Uh, I'm going to close out the TikTok questions. Um, Selena wants to know, I sprouted in water and now they aren't growing in soil. Do we have any advice for that? That, that could be a lot of things. Uh, typically, overwatering in dirty soil will damp off a plant and that's where it just kind of stops growing, shrivels up and dies. And that's a bacterial infection. Yeah. Or our good old friend mold, aspergillus. Yeah, or not keeping up with the, the light needs uh, of the plant as it is maturing, you know, obviously germinating in, in dark and water. Um, and when you're going into something like soil, make sure that those soil conditions are as preferable as possible. So if you can take an EC and a pH reading of that soil, um, those are probably going to be some of the easiest things to look at, uh, try and troubleshoot some issues like that. Good luck out there. We have one question from Instagram. This is a great one to close us out today. Thank you all for your incredible questions. What a great conversation this has been. Humboldt official wrote in, Hey guys, I had a question for you. What is the biggest, what is the highest gram per square foot you feel comfortable saying you can help a greenhouse cultivator reach? We plan on doing a facility upgrade soon and would like to partner with someone who can help us achieve our biggest yield possible without sacrificing quality. We think you, you could help us reach that goal. What are your thoughts on that, guys? In a well-manufactured greenhouse with some some pretty high-quality growers that are very dedicated to what they're doing, I would say that 70 to 80 grams per square foot of high-quality product would be a you know an a a plus type type growing situation. Um, you know, as, as equipment does get better and uh, people do learn how to operate their control parameters to to begin to mimic an even less variable environment, I think we'll see those numbers continue to go up. Yeah, that's that's right in the realm of what I'm seeing from people who are nailing it in greenhouses right now. And there are people that are running higher, um, but typically that comes with, uh, how would I put it, more and more expensive hybrid growing greenhouses. So if you've got a greenhouse that is uh, very, very, very high tech with incredible cooling capabilities and incredible supplemental light and everything else. CO2 can, for sure. CO2, that's the big one. Once you've got a sealed system with, uh, you know, recirculating air inside and you're recycling your air, you're pumping CO2, that's when we're going to see those big yields. But that 60 to 90 range is usually pretty achievable in most greenhouses, pending your ability to control your VPD. So there might be times of the year, like for us around here, particularly the uh, spring and the fall, we see greenhouse yields go down just because we can't maintain that VPD quite as easily. Or if we want to, we're going to be spending a lot more money on energy to keep that up. I mean, that's been my experience is once the temperature goes down and the rain starts here in the Northwest, um, you're burning that heater a lot in the greenhouse and that's just the reality of it. But if you have a well-designed system and you can keep up with the, you know, climatic differences in your region throughout the year. Yeah. 80 grams is a, a very solid number to start at. And typically we see people coming in in greenhouses, you know, anywhere from that 20 to 45 range before they start crop steering, I would say is really average. And a lot of times by the time they've wrestled, by the time they come to us, they've been wrestling a lot of other equipment in their greenhouse. So once they've got the sensor, uh, the confidence in their sensors that they can then, you know, calibrate all the other sensors in their greenhouse to, they're really able to take it to the next level. Amazing. Thank you guys. And as always, the best way to learn more about Arroyo is to book a demo. So feel free to reach out to us if you want to learn more about what Arroyo can do. Seth and Jason, incredible. Yet another jam-packed, knowledge-packed episode. Thank you so much for 
sharing the knowledge with us. And of course, Mandy, I couldn't, this is, this is me and you. Thank you for holding it down with me. Um, thanks to everybody who joined us for this week's office hours. We do this every Thursday. And as you can tell, the best way to get answers from the experts is to join us live. But as always, let us know if there's a topic you'd like covered in a future episode. Post it in the chat, shoot us an email at support.arroya at metergroup.com or send us an Instagram DM or TikTok. We are on there now. And uh, either way, we want to hear from you. Uh, we record every session. We'll email everyone in attendance a link to the video from today's discussion. It'll also live on the Arroya YouTube channel. Like, subscribe, and share while you're there. And if you find these conversations helpful, please feel free to share them with your network. Spread the word. Thank you all so much, and we will see you next time. Bye. Office Hours Live is brought to you by Arroya, the ultimate cultivation platform. Unlock the power of crop steering through our state-of-the-art sensors and software. Repeat successful runs and scale faster than ever before. Schedule a demo today at Arroya.io.